Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 324 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Planning Center and also the ascentleader.org. And uh, we've got a new segment called uh, What I'm Thinking About. And I want to talk to you about what unites almost every business church organization in terms of the strategy that we're using these days. Had a clarifying moment recently with the CEO of a national company that really made me think, huh, you know, we're really all doing the same thing. So that's at the very end of the podcast. My guest today is Claire Diaz-Ortiz, and you are going to be, I think, grateful that you tuned in. She is an author, speaker, innovation advisor, and angel investor who was an early employee at Twitter. Fast Company named her one of the 100 most creative people in business, and she's also called the woman who got the Pope on Twitter by Wired. She holds an MBA, other degrees from Stanford and Oxford, has been featured widely in places like the New York Times, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, BBC, Fast Company, and she's the award-winning author of eight books, and uh, she's at Claire on Twitter. So she's somebody I've been following for a long, long time, and really glad to have her on the show. And we talk about, well, all things social media and strategy, and I do think that's the business we're all in, so I'm going to add my two cents at the very end of the podcast. And I'm so glad you tuned in today. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a phenomenal year so far on the podcast, so welcome to all of you who are brand new to it. The fun part is we have an archive now of like 300 and some odd episodes. So uh, really excited to welcome you on board. If this episode means something to you, share it, let us know and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, subscribing is free. Well, if you get around most organizations that do some kind of event planning, Planning Center has become the industry standard. And it's also a way that you can really help your volunteers serve well or your staff. Uh, So for example, when I talk to leaders, they're so frustrated because they're like, I'm trying to schedule everybody, but like this guy isn't available then and this person isn't available then and we can't get enough people. Well, if you don't use Planning Center or maybe you do and you don't know about this feature, You don't have to do any of that. Your volunteers and your team members, your staff, can set up their own blockout dates when they're out or they need a break. And that takes a tremendous load off of you. Planning Center also makes it really easy to follow up with volunteers, send thank you emails, and track people who have RSVP'd for that week's event or rehearsal. And using the People app, you can use their workflow and list tools for following up with new visitors, volunteers, or even something like prayer requests or what's going on in people's lives. So they also have an incredible support team. And if you want to check them out, make sure you visit them today at planning.center. That's planning.center. And as you may know, none of us is going to hold our job forever. And succession is a massive issue in the church, in so many places. And uh, it's something I care so passionately about. It's something that I started in my own church that I founded five years ago. And if you're a leader sensing that transition is in your future, maybe even 10 to 15 years out, there's a curated cohort just for you and your spouse to begin thinking about it and processing that. It's hosted by the Ascent Leader. And in this particular cohort, you will be with Kenton and Lori Bishore for three days in, uh, this is going to be hard, Palm Desert, California. Kenton was a longtime senior pastor of Mariner's Church, one of the largest churches in the United States. They've had a very successful transition, and he's just going to open up his book, Kenton and Lori, and talk all about it. You'll navigate the sensitive nature of leadership succession. You'll get personal mentorship from Kenton and Lori and advice from high-level peers. There are very limited spots available, and you have to apply. But if this might be of interest to you or you're on the team and think, you know what, my senior leader could probably use this, even if it's 10 to 15 years out, head on over to theascentleader.org and check that out. Well, I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Claire Diaz-Ortiz. So how about we jump right to that? Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So you got a fascinating background, um, including, and I don't know how I first heard of you, but years ago, I learned that you were one of the early employees at Twitter. Um, you know, an actual number, employee number 51. Is that true? 
It's actually not a true number, but I am. It's not. Well, that's what Mashable said. Are you saying that Mashable did not tell the truth? Isn't that funny? I often think about how that was quoted in some article one time years ago, and then it just kept getting repeated. Actually, truth be told, I do not know my employee number, and I'm unclear where you look. It's on some stub somewhere, but I don't know it. (laughs) But it was was early days, was it? Yeah, it was more uh, or less. Yeah, I once said in an article that I joined and there were about 50 people there, and that's what it turned into. Oh, there you go. Well, you know, yeah. if, believe it or not, everything you read on the internet isn't true. Did you know? That? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I would like to talk a little bit to start out. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, but the early days at Twitter. I mean, it's fascinating. I've listened to the stuff coming out of Silicon Valley for years, had a chance to visit there a number of times myself, but those were those are kind of heady days. Uh, take us back to sort of what that moment was like in the mid to late 2000s in Silicon Valley. Sure. So, I mean, the way I ended up as an early employee essentially was because I was an early user. At the time, I had been traveling around the world and blogging about it and then ended up living in this orphanage in Kenya where I was also blogging about my experiences. And for those who know a little bit about the history of Twitter, Twitter actually was incubated at blogger.com. And so if it was 2005, 2006, and you had a blog on the internet, you were probably writing it at blogger.com. So essentially I was typing my words, but, you know, tripping on words.blogspot.com, you know, like the longest blog URL, URL ever. And the Twitter folks found it and started to promote it. And then essentially said, Hey, excuse me, the blogger folks found it and started to promote it. And then said, we're launching this new service called Twitter. Why don't you join and start tweeting about your adventures in the same way that you were blogging about them? And so that was sort of how I got started on the platform. Obviously, there weren't many folks in Kenya. There weren't many folks doing what I was doing at the time. And I started to build a following. And eventually, within, I guess, about a year or two, that led into me becoming an early employee out at at the company. And I initially started, I was in business school at the time, and I just started with a a three-month kind of internship to write my thesis. And then at the end of, of that time, just essentially stayed. So it was it was definitely an exciting time. One of the the early stories I, I, I remember, not fondly, but with humor, is sitting in the office, there are about 50 people, and we got a knock on the door. And my friend, uh, who was sort of working as like a BD person and a receptionist and kind of everything all rolled into one, goes to the door, answers the door, and it's a user. And the user is having a problem uploading her profile pic, right, right. To, to the platform. And so my, my friend helps her and all this kind of stuff. And she comes back and tells us about it. And, you know, we say, oh, that was, that was nice of you. Weird that the user could just knock on the door and that kind of thing. And she said, yeah. And the weirdest part was that the profile pic was very revealing bikini photo. So it was just, you know, <laughs> the days, it was just what's going on, you know, it was just a very, very different time. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, so around that time, you were you at Stanford? Were you studying at Stanford at that time? Or were you in England studying? I was in England. So I did my MBA out at Oxford. Oxford has um, an incredible program for social entrepreneurs. And I had been coming out of this nonprofit that I was running in East Africa. So I had been granted this scholarship to, to study up there. And it was an incredible experience. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. So... Um, what you have the coolest username too, right? You got Claire at Claire. <laughs> I did not get it initially, though. Another you thing didn't? that people do not understand, no, because when I first joined Twitter, I had the the name of this this long winded blog name as my as my Twitter name. So that was definitely not my first Twitter name. <laughs> right, right. But Jack Dorsey is he like at Jack and you know Biz Stone? He got you know. I guess when you start the company, you can get some pretty cool handles. Did you have any idea? This is one of the questions that. I think is circulating now in a different light. But did you have any idea that social media would become what it has become at that time? Because Facebook was starting to really gain traction. Instagram was, I don't think, even around at that point. I think that started in 2011. Um, I mean, when you look back at what you thought this would become, what did you imagine it would be? Yeah, I mean, so when I joined Twitter back in 2009, 
the the speech, the the opening to the speech I would give most often about how Twitter and how social media more generally was going to be used as a force for change and a force for for positive good in the world. At the time, the beginning to the speech I would always give would reference the fact that you know when Twitter started in the end of two thousand six. People thought it was just something that you would use to tell people what you're eating for breakfast, right? And so yeah. even in 2009, which was two years into it, but only 50 really employees into it. So those first couple of years didn't see a ton of growth on the company side. We were still getting the same kind of feedback and pushback in a lot of news media. People just simply didn't understand that it was actually going to make a big change in the way that not only individuals approached the world, but in the way that, you know, communities and governments and social systems did. And my role, you know, I had come from this nonprofit background and the, the thesis I wrote on Twitter was about corporate social innovation. So that was my first role at the company. And what that meant essentially was that Biz Stone, one of the co-founders, had this belief that Twitter could be used as a tool for good. And so he wanted someone to proactively push that agenda. So that was kind of what I was tasked with in, in the early days and, and, and throughout my time at the company. But in later years, I, I had some other mandates as well. And so for me, it was incredibly powerful to watch kind of these early firsts. Um, you know, the, the summer of 2009, you had, you know, the island nation of Moldova, having this revolution and, you know, people called it the first Twitter, Twitter revolution because yeah. the people were able to organize was, was through Twitter, right? In January of 2010, you had um, the hurricane in Haiti. And that was, you know, the first time that we really understood that Twitter and social media more generally could really be used in disaster relief, right? So, I mean, we were seeing these, these moments building up. And, you know, eventually within a few years, by 2013, 2014, we sort of recognized its power. Um, and then, you know, it's sort of all this, this curve because then by the time you get to 2017, we started to see uh, the limits of its efficacy and the problems that came along with it. So it's been really easy, interesting, I should say, to watch the last 10 years of sort of our understanding of social media kind of come and then grow, I should say. Well, it's it's interesting, you know, because I think we're all kind of watching what's happening, not just on Twitter, but on different platforms now. And the the things that were initially empowering also empower a toxicity that I'm not sure any of us really realized was as big or as profound. Any thoughts on that when you look at and and Twitter now? I mean, it, there's a lot of you, you have to be really careful. Uh, I think Donald Miller even said in the bio to your book, he tries to stay away from Twitter sometimes because mm -hmm. it can it can be depressing. Um, I'm still on it and we're trying to use it for good, you know, trying to use that little, trying to be some of the good people on the internet. But some days you feel like, wow, there's a lot of strange and a lot of toxic out there. What are your thoughts on that, Claire? Sure. I mean, I like to say that 2018 was kind of the worst year of social media's life. That's really the year where we started to understand, okay, what, what is this doing to our brains, you know, our inabilities to focus and to concentrate? What is this doing to our adolescence? You know, we look at potentially increased suicide rates in girls and boys as potentially a, a connection to their social media use. And we look at sort of what it's doing to political systems throughout the world in terms of what we call these filter bubbles or these basically, you know, these information silos, right? Which is that idea that I go on Twitter or I go on Facebook and I read the things from the people I already follow. And so then I become more entrenched in my own views, right? And so it's kind of the exact opposite of what we called, of, of what we initially thought of social media. We used to call it an open information platform. And the reality is, yes, it's open information, but that doesn't... Um, that doesn't address, that phrase doesn't address that information is weighted differently, right? right. So that's how you end up with these, these silos and these filter bubbles. I, you know, I think that social media is a tool that can be good or bad. And I think mm -hmm. we are seeing it now used very widely in both ways. And I think now what is happening is just that we are realizing that as individuals actually have to use more self-restraint and be more in control of, of our use on these platforms. In the past, we just sort of thought they were good things and kind of 
let us all use them as much as possible. And now we're saying, hey, we're seeing, hey, it's not really like that. We do have to have to mediate things. You know, that being said, I'm I'm a marketer and I do believe that if you want to sell anything at all these days, you're going to be online. And if you're online, you really got to have some kind of presence on social media. It's, you know, it's your most ubiquitous and your least expensive marketing tool. And, you know, the reality is, as with many things, you know, use and moderation is, is, is okay for individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's hard to get to, but just, just to, I guess it's become so much more than anybody thought it was even a decade ago and revealed a lot more like this. This was not really the trajectory that anyone had in mind, would you say? I mean, they're conspiracy theorists, not in the crazy internet sense, but you listen to people like Tristan Harris or so on and so forth. And there's there's a variety of really thoughtful people weighing in on social. Uh, I want to shift gears, but I just want to see if there's anything else you want to say on that um, before yeah, we I mean, move I would on. Say the, what, yes, I think my final thought would be, so Tristan Harris, and he has the Center for Humane Technology. It's a great initiative. I do think the one challenge I would insert into um, you know, his mission, I would say, and this larger sort of mission to kind of take technology back, as I like to say, is I do think one of the problems in the creation of social media as we know it was a lack of diverse voices early on. And so I just want to be mm. clear with ongoing initiatives like the Center for Humane Technology that I do think they've got to really push the agenda now to make sure they've got diverse players and diverse people weighing in, because I do think some of the kind of systemic problems we see a perfect example would be bullying, right? On a platform yeah, like Twitter. Yeah. Uh, we're not really understood thoroughly simply because you had a really homogenous group of engineers creating this stuff. And I mean, Evan Williams, the co-founder of Twitter, he's acknowledged this. He said straight up, you know, had had we had, you know, more women or, or people that look different at the table in those early days, we might've thought about some of this different stuff differently. So I just want to make sure that that stays, stays forefront, um, yeah. stays top of mind, that we look towards changing. That's fair. And it's a good note to everybody leading something or starting something today to, right, yeah. to, to look at your own biases and even the unconscious biases you might have or the, the, the direction that you might have. Okay. This is going to feel real random, but I got to ask you a couple of questions while I got you. Um, okay. And again, the internet does lie. So if this is wrong, correct me. But I believe that I either read or heard something that uh, is attributed to you a few years ago. And I'm actually writing a book on this that comes out next fall about how to leverage your time. And you, you said something like even the most brilliant engineers at Twitter probably only had about three great hours a day in them of coding. True? And if so, what do you mean by that? I don't know if I said exactly that, but I believe exactly that. And I would say <laughs> yeah. it works just as much for an engineer as for anyone else. I mean, I, yeah. you know, there's lots of sort of studies showing how long we can as individuals actually focus and actually be productive. And the reality is that you can't really, no matter what you do, no matter how much sort of coffee or how much isolation or how much, you know, you in a creative, beautiful space feeling inspired that you add into the mix you've really only got a few hours a day of really good productive time. And so yeah. I think one of the, the biggest kind of mistakes that certainly companies like these tech companies have or make is just by getting people to try to work all the time, right? And, and they do that with free food and with gyms and all this stuff, which, which is helpful, but those things would, would be helpful if you didn't make them work all the time. You know, I just saw right. on, on Twitter, I don't even know what company it was, but it was a company that reduced all employees to a four-day work week and then saw incredible productivity gains and things like that I'm always super fascinated by because I think it's, it's what all the studies are showing. You know, the less we work, the more productive we can actually be. And, you know, I mean, there are folks that say, hey, if you figure out, you know, your, your biological prime time, as they say, so the time of the day in which you're most productive, that time of day, you can actually be, you know, like 100 times more productive than you at at 4 p.m. and in a sluggish post-lunch state, for example. <laughs> I would be one of those people who completely agree with that. I think, I think that's very, very true. One of your earlier books you wrote uh, on scheduling your day. So you have three children, is it? And you. yeah, you've written multiple books. You've been involved in some really fast-paced startups. You are a tech advisor, um, also a startup advisor and an investor. I mean, you got a lot of balls up in the air. So 
Do you want to speak to everyone who's juggling a lot? What are some of the um, strategies, the rhythms, the habits that you've employed that have helped you try to keep it all in the air, have your sanity and still have time for interviews like this? Uh, sure. So I think one of the the big things is trying to um, compartmentalize my life as much as I can. So, okay. you know, there are a lot of people that talk about this, but trying to do the whole, you know, when your mom, your mom, and when you're at work, you're at work thing. I think it makes you certainly it makes you sort of more productive when you're at work. Um, but it also makes you enjoy both sides of the coin much, much better. I think there's nothing more stressful than like having a small child yell at you while you are trying to respond to an email on your phone, right? You're, you're not doing either, either thing well in that scenario. So trying to kind of separate out those worlds as much as possible. Um, I have a friend, Crystal Payne of Money Saving Mom, who I think last year did this whole experiment where when she got to the end of her workday and she has a home office like you do, but when she got to the end of her workday, she would leave her phone actually in the, in the basement, the office she has until, you know, until the kids went to bed or something like that. And I love sort of little experiments like that, because I think the reality is we all have a lot less self-control than we think we do. And so putting up those sort of barriers helps us to, uh, to, to live better, essentially. For me, the challenge is always kind of the disconnection. I went through many years of not having email on my phone. It's been back on my phone for about four months now, and I don't like it. Uh-huh. Um, and I've got to, I've got to get back into the rhythm. And you know, I went through many years of not looking at email at all during the weekend. And I would say about three months ago, I sort of slipped back into both of these patterns again. And it's it's been a challenge. It makes me feel more exhausted when Monday morning comes around. You know what I mean? So I want to get back into that. <laughs> Why and how did you cut it out a few years ago? Because that's a really important strategy. I've moved it to a third screen on my phone and sometimes oh. delete it when I'm on holiday. Sometimes yeah. delete when you're on holiday. Mm-hmm. So I actually got, it was when I was writing this book, Design Your Day, so maybe about six years ago, that was when I was kind of doing all this research into productivity. And that was when I said, okay, I want to get this off my phone. And then interestingly, I've been doing it for a few years. And then the thing I did that really convicted me of its kind of power was I did a, um, maybe two years ago, I did a 21 day detox. Oh yeah. Nothing. So no, you know, my phone was just a dead weight. I didn't have, um, I didn't have a phone or email or social media or anything like that for 21 days. And that was super interesting to me. And it definitely made me more convicted about, you know, trying to compartmentalize my life and trying to always not always be online, but it also did something that was surprising, which was show me that I think sometimes we can idealize the lives <laughs> that we think people led before technology. In those 21 days, you know, there were a couple of times where it was very clear to me that if I had my phone, life would actually be significantly easier at this exact moment, you know? Yeah. Okay. That's good. And then you put it back on because you were in the middle of writing a book. That's it. And then three to four months ago, I I just kind of fell out of the habit. I think it was following a vacation where I felt very frazzled and just kind of put them back on my phone again. And it's so easy when you do something like that to realize that, um, you know, you don't, you don't have the, the self-control often to, to stop it. Any other hacks that have really helped you try to uh, balance family work and the various things that you're doing? Uh, meditation, exercise, and then a morning routine. Those are kind of all mainstays. I have gotten really into meditation about two years, about two years ago, I got really into it. I tried it for years, but the thing that changed it for me was finding an application that I actually really liked. I use the Calm app. I use it every day and I swear by it. I think it's just super helpful. I think being able to listen to a guided meditation, it makes it easier to do. So that's really important. And then making sure, you know, I exercise and then having, having a morning routine. What's your typical, because we do have the majority of the listeners are young. They've got kids right in the zone, kind of where you're at right now with kids still very much at home, very much dependent on their parents, not teenagers. What, what do the first few hours of your day look like? Well, I think this is the big thing that has shifted since I've had children. My daughter is almost six and then I have two boys who are three. And for me, the big, big thing was realizing that actually at this stage of life, morning routine for me isn't just, it's not going to be the first thing. 
And I think that meant for a long time that I wasn't doing it because I said, oh, Mm. I can no longer do it first thing, so I don't need to do it. And so for me, what happens is I end up at the office about an hour and a half to two hours after getting out of bed. And that first hour at the office is devoted to me with coffee doing my morning routine. So doing expressive writing, um, you know, I usually do expressive writing, journaling, and then some type of motivational or devotional reading, essentially. And that first hour is essential. It's so funny because I was in, I do it in my office co-working in the kitchen, sorry, in the kitchen part of the co-working because I like to do it away from my desk. I want a different space for that first hour. And a guy came up to me just yesterday and was like, what are you always doing for a whole hour every morning without your computer? (laughs) (laughs) Like, and it's it's the best hour of my day. It's the best hour. Oh, that's a, you know, that's a really good strategy actually is, um, is, is saying, okay, if I, if I can't get, you know, 6am or 7am or whatever the wake up hour is, if I can't get it, you're right. A lot of people would just write the day off and go, well, so much for that. But to actually make a break and start your day there, I think, is a really good idea. Um, Okay, so a couple other questions for you. Just when you look back on your leadership, what would you say this far in have been some of the greatest challenges that you've faced as a leader? I think one of the the challenges that I've faced is having a a multi-passionate career. I think that is something that we see more and more, and we see it as more and more popular. Obviously, you are an example of that. Um, By multi-passionate, can you just talk about what that means, multi-passionate? You have a few different interests that you feel are very strong, and maybe they all have one sort of North Star, and maybe those interests, either the interests could be one North Star with multiple ways you express it, like a podcast and then a book, and then speaking. Or it could really be maybe two kind of diverging interests that you both want to, that you want to. I love that phrase. It's good. And I think for me, that was tough to wrangle with because some of my favorite books of all time and some of my favorite leadership teachings of all time are all about, you know, focusing on that one thing, right? I love Essentialism by Greg McEwen. I love The One Thing. I love all the stuff Michael Hyatt talks about this, and and I believe it, but it kind of has always conflicted in my head with how you deal with having a few different kind of missions in life or ways you express that one mission. Oh, that's so how have you navigated that multi-passionate career path? Yeah. I mean, I think I've just tried to make things like, you know, the tenants that are talked about in essentialism or in the one thing I've tried to kind of make them my own. And realize that, you know, I'm never going to have exactly one thing on the the goals list or the vision board or whatever it is that is going to be the absolute priority in a given year. And I think I will have a couple. And I think that actually just based on my personality type makes me stronger in the other things that I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> would you say, would you say, no, this is really good. Would you say that there's a thread there, Claire? I had um, a couple of people speak into my life. I remember one day I was listening to, I think, a podcast by Reed Hoffman. I had another guy coaching me. And it occurred to me that of all the various things I've done, the one common thread, and I didn't see this until a few years ago, was communication. Whether that was law, I gravitated to the courtroom. If that was ministry, I gravitated toward the sermon. If, you know, here I am sort of in this entrepreneurial space, and what am I doing? Podcasting, writing books, speaking. It's Mm -hmm. all communication. Would you say, looking mm-hmm. back at your variety of things, can you distill a common thread that kind of, like, is it all entrepreneurial? Is it all, like, what, what would you say it is that really? So the way I, I think about it, and I've thought about this a lot, is that there are two things that I kind of consistently thrive at in all areas mm-hmm. of my life. And one of them is basically content creation. So I really like writing and I really like speaking. And then the other thing is connecting because I really like connecting people to people. And so Ah. things happening a lot. And when I'm not doing one of those things, I think I'm really outside my sweet spot, like not in my sweet spot. (laughs) I I bet you for a lot of people who are multidisciplinary or multi-passionate, if you look through, you probably find a thread there. There there probably is a thread 
Okay, good. What's been surprisingly easy? Like most people on the outside would be, oh, that's got to be tough. And you're like, no, actually, it's pretty easy. What's been easy in leadership for you or life? I mean, I think one of my superpowers is just really, I really enjoy connecting with people. I'm a total introvert, but I, I love connecting and I love making those connections. And I think my brain just kind of does that. You know, I, I see someone, I meet someone, I think, oh, you should, you should talk to, to B person and then B person should talk to C person. And that's just one of the things that I completely love doing. And so that has never been, really never been a challenge for me. I feel like I can, you know, go to some conference and drop into some city and, you know, randomly find 10 people to have an interesting dinner with that night. You know, that's something that I'm good at. <laughs> that is a superpower. Okay. So your latest book, it just came out, is all about the difference between brand marketing or sorry, between uh, social media success. And I want to start by talking about the difference between brand marketing and direct marketing. So can you clarify those terms for us? Yeah. So I think this is super important. And when I was kind of just coming up with this new book, Social Media Success for Every Brand, one of the pain points that I developed this book really out of was this real mistaken idea people have that social media should lead you directly to a sale. So you should be able Mm. to put up a social media post on Twitter and then you should see someone buy your widget. And if you don't, then that means that social media didn't work. Right. And so One of the ways I really began to kind of think about this, and one of the things I talk about in the book, is that I think most people mistake social media for a direct marketing tool when really it's a brand marketing tool. So direct marketing or you know direct sales marketing is I send a marketing message and you purchase something as a direct result. Right? Brand marketing, in contrast, is marketing for, for the sake of creating awareness about the brand and engagement around the brand. So these are very, very different goals. And one of the things that I see all the time in startups I advise or invest in is this immediate complaint upon joining a new social media platform that the sales aren't rolling in. So, you know, Mm. basically this whole new book that I wrote is all about looking at why social media works for brand marketing and then how you can get people interested in your brand and then lead them up what I call an engagement ladder to the point at which then you can make a direct sale or make a direct ask of them and then see the, you know, the, the sales that you actually want. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I've thought about this in the past, I think car companies do something similar. You think about a vehicle, you might purchase one somewhere between every four to 10 years. I don't know what the average would be. And yet you yeah. see car ads every day, right? You see car companies right. are advertising every day, but it's not... Right. Like, oh, wow, I saw that billboard. I'm going right into the dealership and I'm right. going to drop $35,000 right now. Right. But we expect right. that from social. I think that's a, I've never thought about that in terms of cars, but that's, exa- that's a perfect example, right? We don't mind yeah. that we see these cars out there. That's really interesting, actually. Right. Yeah. And so the idea is you need to be out there. And and I think what, what I find fascinating about this, it's a partnership with Don Miller and the story brand people. And I'm an avid listener to the podcast and uh, reading a lot of what Don is writing over the years. But you've taken his story brand framework and adapted it to social media. So can you walk us through some of the broad strokes of that adaptation, Claire? Sure. So, I mean, the background to this is Don and I have been friends for about a decade, and I love the story brand marketing framework. And it's something I've used with, with, with startups that I've worked with a lot. But one of the challenges that I see with it is that there was never really an exact plug-and-play model for then using the story brand framework on social media. The framework, right. if you've been through it or if you've read his book, Building mm-hmm. a Story Brand, is, is really great for showing you exactly what you need to do on a website and what you need to do on an email newsletter. Um, but it doesn't go into you know what I call the third kind of pillar of digital media, which is social media. So that was kind of when I came to him a couple years ago and said, hey, this is amazing. I love story brand for my clients, but I think we need something related to how to use it exactly with social media. And he said, hey, why don't you create it? And so that's where this came from. So essentially what I did in the book is create a five-step model. I call it the share model. And it walks you through really exactly how to go about doing this. And the first step in the model is figuring out uh, the, the basic story brand framework first. So you understand your story and how to tell a clear story before you do anything else. And then it's kind of the next four steps of the model are 
are taking you through kind of the practical logistics and some of the theoretical ideas about how how to really post well on social and how to see results. Yeah, I think one of the things Don has done really well, and he's changed the conversation, I think, in a lot of circles on this, is it's like, stop being the hero of your own story. If you look at every good novel, every good movie, every good you know story that gets told in human history, um, the idea is that there's sort of a guide, and then there's the hero, and the hero struggles. And so his big thing is, no, make the, in my case, the podcast listener or the audience, mm-hmm. or the reader, mm-hmm. make them the hero. Do you want to talk about that a little bit as it applies to social media? Do we still try to make ourselves the hero? We, we try to make ourselves the hero all the time. And one of the, one of the ways you most do that is the type of content that we, that we promote and that we send out on social. So one of the big things I, I try to encourage people to understand really early on is that your social media platforms are are really like a bank account. And in order to keep your bank account in the black, you need to be depositing more than you withdraw. And depositing in in the world of social media is about creating valuable content. Um, And then withdrawing is is when you make that call to action. You ask someone to go to your website and to download your PDF or, or to even buy something or to share your product with a friend, right? But so it's really, really important when you think about making sure that your customer is your hero to make sure that 80% of the time you're really depositing value, giving them things that matter to them. Because that's, that's, that's really the key to keeping people around and keeping people as your followers on a social media platform. And obviously, you don't just want them as your followers. You want them to then move up this engagement ladder to become increasingly engaged with you, you know, up to the point that, you know, they are these diehard fans, essentially. Yeah. How do you do that? Like what are, what can you give us some concrete examples of content that you think would not be about you versus the direct ask? Like. Sure. So, I mean, when in the book, we walk through exactly how to create kind of the perfect editorial calendar for, for your brand and the perfect social media schedule for your brand. But I think on a macro level, the most important thing that happens before that is to figure out which platform is actually for you. So one of the things that I think is really valuable about the book is that we have this social media evaluation. And in it, I basically just created an evaluation that any brand can take to figure out which platform matters most to them and which should be their priority platform. Because I I cannot tell you the number of brands or startups I've worked with who have said, hey, you know, we, we just put all our content on Facebook, but no one cares. And so social media doesn't work, right? And I say, well, you know, what's, what's your brand about? And they say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a recruiter. I'm an executive coach. And I say, okay, well, take this evaluation, but I'm going to bet before you take this evaluation that Facebook is not going to be your priority platform and that actually you're going to see a lot more success on either LinkedIn or Twitter, right? So each of these platforms is really good for different things. And people often do not realize that. Uh, You know, you talk about, we mentioned Twitter earlier on, Twitter is, the superpower of Twitter is, is connecting people, right? So if you are looking to recruit someone, if you are looking to invest in a startup, if you are looking to find a, a thought leader who might be able to, to share the, the, the good news of your latest book coming out, all those types of things are perfect on Twitter and they pretty much suck on most of the other platforms, right? In contrast, if you are a blogger and you have a lot of content, you have a lot of content you produce and you want a lot of eyeballs to that content, you're going to see way, way more success on either Facebook or secondarily Instagram, depending on if you have good images or not, right? So it's really important to figure out what platform before you then start thinking up what kind of content is going to work best because the different platforms have different types of, of content that really work for them. Right. Do you want to take us up the, the ladder a little bit, the engagement ladder, sort of uh, talk about that? I'd love to drill down on that, Claire. Sure, sure. So, I mean, basically, you know, I, I like to say that social media in, in many ways is like a cocktail party, right? And so if you think of a cocktail party uh, and you think of, you know, what, what are your goals when you go to a cocktail party? Your goals are probably to, to have a good time, to maybe meet someone, to maybe meet someone that you connect with and maybe exchange business cards, to maybe follow up at a later date, right? Your goal at the cocktail party is, is probably not and should not be you know, rush in and run up to your ex-boyfriend's, husband's, wife's roommate and try to sell your latest healing essential oil, right? That yeah. doesn't work 
going to be the guy at the cocktail party no one wants to talk to. And so when we think of social media like a cocktail party, we think of, okay, how can you stand out in a positive way and potentially make a connection that on both sides might lead to following up at a later date, right? So you can send out valuable content perhaps to to make that happen, right? Stand out in a positive way on social media with the hope that then someone will follow you, which is the first step on that engagement ladder. And then as you walk them up the engagement ladder, as you continue to, to share good content with them, you're hoping that, you know, first they follow you, then they maybe respond to you on social media, then they maybe share one of your posts with someone else, then they maybe click on your website URL, then they maybe join your email newsletter, you know, then they maybe open that email newsletter, and then they maybe make a first purchase, and then they maybe become, you know, one of those diehard fans. So that's kind of the example of how that engagement ladder works. And the specific rungs of the ladder can, can differ from brand to brand, but that is really the overview. And the idea is that, you know, social media as this incredibly ubiquitous tool that is oftentimes free or nearly free is one of the best ways to get people on that ladder in the first place. And then you're going to use some of these other digital media tools to, to pull them up the ladder while you're still connecting with them on social. Can that be a long sequence sometimes, the engagement Absolutely. ladder? Absolutely. It can be an incredibly long sequence. I mean, I've had folks on my email newsletter for 10 years. And, you know, some of those people actually open regularly. But, you know, they're, they're, they're not interested in on any of the things to buy yet, you know? And maybe they will one day, maybe they won't. But for them, it's been a really long ladder so far. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, you know, because there's one guy that I've been a fan of for a long time, Ramit Sethi, and mm-hmm. um, and I've, I've followed him online. I think it started with an email newsletter, and then mm-hmm. I started following him on social. I was really engaged. I got all the sales emails, but I would read his emails, but never click. And then a few months ago, as our team needed to do some training, I went in and bought one of his courses. His courses are okay. not cheap. Not no. cheap. I mean, they're multi thousands no. of dollars. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, there's a great example. I was thinking if I was Ramit Sethi, I might think this guy has no interest in me. He reads all my emails. He's not, he's never going to do anything. Then all of a sudden, one day I decide I'm flipping a switch and I made a major mm-hmm. investment. Is that typical? Mm-hmm. Is that what can happen? I do not think that's typical. And I think, you know, okay, Ramit's a okay. friend of mine from, from college, actually, I just saw him at our reunion and I've done the same with him. I oh yeah, because you were both finally, Stanford, right? I finally bought one of his very expensive courses last year. Um, yeah. I think he would probably tell us if you are, you know, really targeted towards online marketing, that you would probably not want to keep that person around that long. <laughs> you probably mm. want, to, want to shorten the cycle to some extent. Um, but, you know, everyone's different. So you were at that reunion. My wife and I were actually right next to Stanford at the Stanford Park Hotel while that was going on. And I thought, I'm just going to like crash the party, but I didn't do it. So (laughs) it was really hot that day. I mean, October in California is always hot, but that was, wow. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) but it was a good time. Was it? We had a great time. Yeah. Not a total, just a bit of a detour. Um, But Stanford has produced a lot of, incredible graduates. Any idea what some of the secret sauce is there? It says $50,000 palm trees, I got to tell you. <laughs> we heard about that? No, I have not. We always, I remember we got there as freshmen. We went on some you know, tour with our freshman dorm resident advisor, I don't know, of campus. And the thing he told us that I repeat to this day, I have no idea if it's true or not, is that on the main sort of entryway on Palm Drive, each of the trees cost $50,000 to fly in from like Russia or something. I, I don't know. So, that <laughs> oh, well, that's it. That's the secret. Okay. We know. Um, okay. Back to, back to the main story. I just, I just had to throw that in. Um, so the engagement ladder and the time sequence. What are some keys to getting people to move up? Because I know there's a lot of churches putting content out there that they think is valuable. There's a lot of businesses. It's like, wow, I've shared like, you know, if you're in real estate, I've shared five ways to prepare your house for resale, um, mm-hmm. got free information out there. What are some tricks to, or, or tips, I should say, not so much tricks, but um, strategies to moving people up that engagement ladder a little bit sooner? 
so one of the things is you've got to make sure to have calls to action. So I say, you know, 80% of the time you're depositing and then 20% of the time you're withdrawing and doing a call to action. You know, I just did a a LinkedIn live with someone who has a really large community of HR professionals on LinkedIn. We were talking about my book and, you know, I I was sharing the engagement ladder and he was just like, wow, I really never call people to action, you know, and he was telling me he's had his business for X number of years. He's got all these thousands of people and he's never asked them to buy anything. Right. And they all just sort of buy some of it. And I'm like, ah, you know, this doesn't work. So I think, and I think this is something Ramit talks about also, it's a little bit of you do have to train your followers a bit to understand that they are going to get some sales messages from some to time, from time to time. Right. And some people are just not going to like it. I mean, here I come out with, you know, one book every two years and I sent a few emails the week my book came out to, you know, 20,000 people on my list. And this one guy, he must've responded three times with just these horrific messages about, you know, stop shilling for your book. I will never buy it. You know, and you're thinking, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> right? but so they're always, they're always going to be people that are going to complain, even if you are selling your list about, you know, even if you're just selling your list about the book you write every two years and those people probably are not meant to be there. So you want to kind of, you know, train people on social media and, and in your email newsletters to accept the fact that you're going to be, you know, calling them to action occasionally, but you're not going to be doing it all the time and you're not going to be pushing it down their throats. I I think one of the biggest problems on social media is just that people think it's like a billboard, but really, really small. And so you can just push a market at people all all day and all night and you really can. I mean, people unfollow you. How do you respond to people like that guy who emailed you three times or do you, do you just like read it and let it go? I didn't let it go. I mean, I try not to read any of those kind of responses. I try to get them not shown to me. I think that's just too much negative energy. But you can't win, right? You can't win. What, I mean, what can you do? And honestly, why, why is he on my email list? It's crazy, right? But there's always that. That's like Seth Godin-ish. Those, those people are not for you, right? Like, like that's not your audience. That's not your target. Um, That's good. No, I know I've got a fairly large list and uh, I used to be paralyzed when I saw people unsubscribe. And now I've just resigned myself. Uh, I send out a daily email. You know, I'll get 20 to 50 unsubscribes a day on a list of about 55,000. But I will always, unless it's a really weird day, there's always net gains, like way more people subscribing than unsubscribing. And do you look for traction like that to see whether you're hitting your like too many unsubscribes and not enough subscribes can tell you something or how do you, how do you gauge whether you're connecting in the right way? I guess is the question under the question. Well, I mean, on social media, the way you, the way you figure out if you're connecting is the engagement metrics you see in terms of the posts you're sharing. So on Twitter or on Facebook or on LinkedIn, you're seeing what posts are actually working and what aren't, you know, and some of the best posts, that you will find will always be what I call pattern disruptors. So, you know, in my book, we, we talk about coming up with a social media schedule and an editorial calendar, but one of the best things to always do is then go a little bit off course from time to time. Right. So let's talk about a story. (laughs) So I share a story in the book of, um, one of my favorite mentors, Marshall Goldsmith, he's this big executive coach and he has a couple million followers on LinkedIn. And one of his most engaged posts of last year was just a family photo he posted around Thanksgiving, right? And the reason that was so engaged upon is just because LinkedIn, you think of as a professional network. You don't think of it like Instagram where people are sharing those types of photos. And so it was a total pattern disruptor. And it was obviously really easy, an easy post for him to create. It was just a family photo, but it got tons of engagement. Uh, you know, I, I think family stuff, when that's not your norm, is always going to to do that. But any kind of pattern disruptor can can really be a you know a net a net gain for for your following. Hmm. So anything that is, I think you said in the book uh, or somewhere, I think I was reading that uh, for your sabbatical, whenever or you really scaled back, right? And then all of a sudden, when you did jump on, engagement went through the roof. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I've seen that a few times when I've gone offline once intentionally for this 21 day digital detox. And then another time I, a few years ago, um, I had twin boys born really early. And I, so I spent a number of months with them in the hospital, not really doing a lot of tweeting or, or posting on Instagram. And I, I really saw very clearly when I did during those times, it was nuts how engaged upon my posts were. And I think most people will tell you the same thing. 
the problem is, though, you don't want that to be the norm because that doesn't build a consistent following, of course. Right, right. So just occasionally do a... All right. Well, as we wrap up, what is, I love asking this question when I get social media experts on, what's the difference between a leader's profile and the organization's profile? Sure. Well, the specific definition will matter, will change a little bit depending on the platform you're using. Um, But essentially all you're saying is just there's a profile on a platform like LinkedIn or like Twitter, like Facebook, that's for you as an individual that either could be you as a dad and human and dog walker, or it could be you as a leader in your organization, you kind of get to choose. And then the organizational profile is just all going to be about the organization. So I think, you know, in this day and age, you see more movement towards having the person be integrated within the personal brand. So you see a lot of these personal accounts that are doing some business stuff at the same time. So that's kind of an interesting crossover. Yeah, Richard Branson comes to mind as somebody who's done that Mm -hmm. fairly well. And that's that's a really effective and important part of his personal brand. We would all feel like he disappeared if we didn't continue to see, you know, him kite surfing in Necker Island from time to time, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I've run into a lot of senior leaders who are like, you know what, my organization, my church, my company, they're online. I don't need to be online. Thoughts on that for senior leaders? I think it's, you know, it's a limited, short-sighted strategy. Obviously, if an individual is is really against social media and is never going to be personally engaged, the amount to which a media team can sustain that individual around them can be limited. In general, I think senior leaders um, can, can really benefit their organizations by having some type of presence. But again, the whole thing I talk about in this book is figuring out your one priority platform and caring about that. So not caring about the 10, 20, 30 new social media, many social media platforms that are out there and instead focusing on the one that's actually going to move the needle and then putting some effort into that, but, but not crazy effort by any means. Well, lots of information here, Claire, that's been super helpful. And your book is really detailed. It's not theoretical. Well, it is theoretical, but it's like super practical. And I look forward to walking my team through it. Um, but for the leader who's like, okay, in light of everything I think I half know about social, what is one good step in the right direction? Or do you have like, hey, just just try this. Okay, today before you go to bed, try this. What would you say sure. that would be? The absolute number one thing you want to do on any social media platform is to create, so it doesn't matter how many times Mark Zuckerberg changes the Facebook algorithm, engagement is always going to give an account greater reach and ultimately greater followers. So you want to create engagement. And a really, really easy way to do that is to ask a question. So that would be a great first step for anyone listening. Yeah. And then, and then be there to respond. Right. Don't just ask a question, come back in two weeks. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. That's really fair. Claire, tell us one more time about the book, where they can find it and where people can find you online. Sure. So the book is Social Media Success for Every Brand. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, We also have a great free video series at socialmediamadesimple.com, which is basically a a five-part video series that can give you some introduction into some of the insights in the book. And you can find me at clairediazortiz.com. Okay. That's awesome. And at Claire on Twitter. Back to where we started. on the Twitter. All right, Claire, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Well, there was an awful lot in that episode. And if you want more, head on over and check out the show notes. They're provided to you for free at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 324. Uh, We've got all the links to Claire's stuff, her book, everything we talked about. Plus, there's transcripts. If you're a reader or you want to use this uh, for your team or whatever, we've got all that available for you. And uh, if you can't spell my name, which I understand, then just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and search Claire Diaz Ortiz. You'll find everything there. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about what's coming up. So if you listen to the end, I've got my new segment called What I'm Thinking About. And I want to take some of the stuff that uh, Claire and I have talked about. Had a recent meeting with uh, a CEO and it just occurred to me, most of us are actually in the same business these days. And I want to explain how that is via social and our presence online. So that's just literally what's meant. It's called What I'm Thinking About. It's at the very end of the podcast. But I want to share with you who's coming up next on the podcast. Coming up, we've got an incredible 
guest list. Adam Duckworth is the founder of Travelmation, and he is disrupting the travel industry. We talked to him. Lisa Turkhurst is back. Mark Driscoll will be on the podcast. Uh, Gary Thomas, Kathy Heller. If you listen to the Don't Keep Your Day Job podcast, you know what a treat you're in for. Bobby Herrera, Pat Lencioni calls him the best CEO you've never heard of. Near AL, Ryan Hawk. Uh, who else have we got? Danielle Strickland, Michael Todd, Joe Saxton. It's going to be a, a packed year. So I'm really excited. But coming up next, we've got Susan Steinbrecher. And she's got some incredible insights on how to lead change and deal with conflict at work. Here's an excerpt. In 15 seconds within, they thought of that individual. And why is that? It's because of how that leader made them feel and often believed in them at a time when they might not have even believed in themselves. Wow. You know, so it's really powerful. And this is where you touch that cord of what really matters. And I, of course, part of what I'm sharing in that message is what kind of legacy are you trying to lead here? I mean, if we're all going to work our 52,800, whatever the current status is actually more now for most <laughs> uh, working, what are we doing? I mean, what is this all about? What are we doing this for? Well, that's coming up next week on the podcast. I'm so excited for that episode. And uh, well, let's get to our feature, What I'm Thinking About. And make sure you check out our partners on this episode, planning.center. If you really want to coordinate your volunteers and your team well, they are the industry standard. Check them out at planning.center. And if you're thinking about succession, visit theascentleader.org and make sure you register now, apply now, uh, to be part of a cohort that's beginning with Kenton and Lori Bishore in Palm Desert, California. I've been part of those cohorts. I'll tell you, they're pretty, pretty amazing. So what am I thinking about? Well, I was having um, just hanging out recently with the CEO, founder of, uh, I won't say exactly what his company was, but he's number one in the nation and it's a sales-based organization. And we were just talking shop and uh, he said, he said, he's talking to me about his uh, org chart and he says, basically, this is what we've got. We've got branding, marketing, social, analytics, and lead generation. And I'm like, my goodness, that, that sounds exactly like what we're trying to do at the church and exactly what I'm trying to do in my company. I mean, a little bit of branding, some marketing, social media, analytics, and lead generation. And it occurred to me, because he's in like hard good sales, like actually selling assets. I'm like, I think we're all in the same business these days. And I don't know what organization you lead. We have a lot of church leaders. We have a lot of marketplace leaders listening as well. But I really think that's where the future is going. And I think one of the reasons he's emerged in a very short window to be number one in the nation is because he's taking branding really seriously, marketing really seriously, social media really seriously, analytics really seriously, and lead generation really seriously. So think through this. I mean, whether you're leading in a church or in the marketplace, if you really want to grow your reach and grow your impact, like what, do you, what are you doing in terms of those five categories? Like lead generation, right? What's lead generation? Well, that's like the free document or the free assessment or the free quiz or the free message or whatever that is that allows you to collect somebody's email address and in exchange for that, you know, give them a free resource, but it gives you what Seth Godin would call permission marketing. You know, they've given you permission to say, yeah, you can talk to me in my inbox. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think email marketing is some of the most effective marketing out there because right now it's the only thing not actually controlled by an algorithm that you have zero control over. So lead generation is really important. Analytics, right? Normally we just pay attention to lag measures. It's like, well, attendance is up or down or giving is up or revenues up or sales are up or sales are down or whatever. Those are lag measures and you see it after you can't impact it. But when you're looking at your analytics, it gives you clues as to what you can do to actually move the needle, like number of first-time guests at a church. Maybe you need to pay attention to that. Well, that's something you actually have control over, right? You can change your strategy to do that. So analytics, like who have you got on lead gen? Who have you got on analytics? Who have you got on social? You probably have someone on social. Marketing, you know, you're thinking about that. Okay, well, who have you got on marketing and who have you got on branding? Your branding actually matters. If you've got a logo that looks like 1996, you're going to get 1996 results. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. I'm still puzzling through that. I really enjoy this segment because it's, it's like, I don't really know 100% what that means, but think about that. Like, take that matrix away and look at your organization, what you're leading. What are you doing about branding, marketing, social analytics, and lead gen? Yeah. 
I'm thinking about that too. So that's what I'm thinking about. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, would you let me know? Just uh, hit me up on social. I'm Kerry Newhoff on Instagram. I'm also uh, C. Newhoff on Twitter and Facebook. Would love to hear about that. Or drop me an email. My email is Kerry at KerryNewhoff.com. And speaking of email, if you would like to get a daily, almost daily infusion of leadership fuel, head on over to KerryNewhoff.com and uh, sign up. I would love to give you that. We've got about 56,000 leaders who get that pretty much every day. And if you want to be one of them, I would love to help you out solving the problems that honestly we're all working on. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Can't wait for the next episode. It's coming up next week. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.